Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. This week we are continuing our series, Heaven and Earth Collide, and we are going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We are trying to answer the question, where did evil begin and what is God doing about it? So if you've ever noticed that the world just seems broken, that there's just so much pain or suffering or uh, chaos in this world, then you are not alone. The biblical authors notice that too. We're going to look in the book of Genesis to, to see where evil began and how the serpent deceived Adam and Eve with a very specific strategy and how he still uses that strategy today to further the evil agenda of creating chaos and disorder in this world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, everyone, welcome again to Fellowship of Greenville students. So good to see you here tonight. My name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship of Greenville. And uh, man, I just want to remind you a couple of things that we believe is that you are loved and you have a place to belong. And we, we believe that about you. We believe God believes that about you. And we're so excited you're here. If you are joining us for the first time or first time in a while, we are in the midst of a series called Heaven and Earth Collide. Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at heaven and earth and uh, kind of what the scriptures have to say about these domains. And uh, hopefully you guys have been enjoying it. It's been really fun to teach. Yeah. It's, hey, thanks, Jenny Ann. I appreciate the love so much. Uh, <laughs> that's like, that is so, that is a golf clap. If I've ever heard one, like, yes. Yes, we have enjoyed this series, Matt. Thank you so much. Like, so subtle. Thank you. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's been good, and hopefully you're learning a lot. Uh, as I said week one, there are some foundational things in this series that if we can understand these things, it sets us up to better understand the overall story of the Scriptures, the overall narrative that the Bible talks about. The Bible is not just a book that talks about God made you, you live a life 60, 70, 80, 90 years, we don't know, and when you die, one day you go to either heaven or hell based on what you do or what you believe. That is not the primary narrative of the scriptures. And that's not even that compelling of a narrative. There is so much more beauty and so much more alluring stories within the scriptures as a whole. We've been talking about those for the past few weeks. We're going to continue this series tonight. A couple of years ago, uh, my son and I were... Uh, uh, I don't know. That's my bad. That's my bad. That's on me. I didn't do a good job of, uh, of establishing that. I don't know if you guys know this. I have... I have children. I have kids. Do you guys know that? I know. I know it's a shocker. I have three. I have three kids. I know. I know. I know. Six. <laughs> my oldest. My oldest is his middle name is River. In honor of Rivers. Yes. Um, yeah. Six-year-old. Three-year-old. And a, a little girl who turned one in June. So I have three kids. Yes. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I have kids. You guys probably didn't know that. I never talk, I never talk about them in here. Um, so a couple years ago, maybe three years ago or so, I was driving home. And, um, and on my way home, I was, I was about to cross Wade Hampton. Shout out, student council. I was about to cross Wade Hampton. And I am sitting at a red light beside a CBS. And to my right, I see this gentleman. And he's holding a cardboard sign. And and the sign is communicating to every passerby that I don't have a home. I'm hungry. I'll take anything you want. 
And uh, I don't live too far from this spot. And so I thought, oh man, I'll just, I'll go home and, and make some stuff for him and, and come back and it'll be great. And so I, I went home and uh, asked my wife to help me kind of put together a, a quick dinner and threw a ton of stuff in, a, in this bag. And uh, my oldest, he's now six, he was probably three at the time. I asked him, I said, hey, Trent, do you want to go with daddy to take dinner to this gentleman uh, who's, who's near our home right now? And Trent was like, sure. And so we, we drove over back to the CVS and we parked and we got out and walked over uh, to this gentleman and introduced ourselves and shook his hand and explained like, hey man, I, I don't know what you like. I don't know if you like any of this, but here's what we made you. We, we try to put a ton of stuff in here for you. And, and he was very appreciative. And, and then we just started talking and we got to hear his life story and kind of some of his backstory. He started talking about his grandkids and um, it was just a, a really uh, cool time. Uh, to do that with my son, because some of the values I want to instill in him are generosity and hospitality and a worldview that's bigger than just our bubble uh, that we live in of comfort so often. And so it was a, it was a great thing. And so I'm, I'm unpacking this on our drive home. I'm asking Trent some questions. But really what's happening is he's asking me some questions. I mean, he's just so curious about the whole thing, about this gentleman we just met, and, and why was he standing there, and like, what, like what, what's the deal now? And and so he starts asking questions like that. And one of the questions he asks is, why doesn't he have a home? And, you know, it's, it's like, man, that could be so many answers. I don't, I don't know his story well enough to answer that, buddy. I'm sorry. And, um, and so he, my son asks me, why do, we, why do we have a home? I'm like, oh, man. Uh, so I'm trying to explain that, you know, on a three-year-old level. And then, and then he asks me, my three-year-old asks me this question. This is, this is how perceptive he is. He asks me, why doesn't Jesus build that man a home? Like somewhere in his three-year-old brain, here's what he got. This man doesn't have a home. My dad thanks Jesus all the time for the home we have. Why doesn't Jesus just build this man a home? Three years old. He's connecting these dots, right? And man, I'm like, I'm like in the driver's seat. He asks me this question, and I'm just like floored by the gravity and the accuracy and the perceptive, uh, perceptiveness of his question. And I'm struggling on how to answer it to a three-year-old. But the reality is, I think Trent's question is really our question all the time. Now, we may word it differently or ask it a little bit differently, but one of the most common questions we have in this life is, why is the world broken? Why do these problems exist? And why isn't God doing anything about it? right? I, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with students. These would probably be the, the primary topics that I talk about with students. It, it, it could start off anywhere. It could start off with the most random things, but inevitably it leads to one of these three topics. One would be relationships. I'm always, students are always asking me about dating and relationships. And so, all right. We, yes. Okay. Students want to know how to date your boo. All right. The second is the second is anything about, like, <laughs> demons. <laughs> it's like, students want to talk about spiritual warfare all the time. All right. They went and they saw Annabelle. Not, not Annabelle. Okay. Where you at? They went and they saw the movie, and now they're like, yo, dude, what's up with that? Okay. Or they want to talk about the brokenness of the world. Or, or we might call it the problem of evil. 
How can evil seem to just run rampant in this world? And where is God in the mix of all this? Like if he's loving and he has power and he has control, then, then how do we reconcile the fact that God is loving and he could stop it, but it doesn't seem to be stopped? Like what do we do with all this? And so my son's question is really our question. Why doesn't Jesus just build this man a house? Or in other words, why doesn't God just fix this? Why doesn't God stop this? Why doesn't God solve the problem? Like, what is God doing up there anyway? Right? Like, we've been there at one time or another. We've wondered that. Maybe not in those words, but in that nature, we have asked that question. Because somewhere in our hearts, we understand this. The world is broken. This cannot be. If there is a God, and he did make everything, and Genesis 1 is accurate, and God said all this is good, and there seems to be a perfect harmony, if all that is true, then our present reality cannot be right. Like, something broke along the way. And so we perceive that there is a brokenness to our world, and we want to know how did it get broken, and what is God doing? And so those are the two questions we're going to be navigating tonight. How did the world get broken, or, or the beginnings of evil, like where did it all come from, where did it start, and then what is God doing? And I need to confess something to you. On the front end, I need to confess this to you. I tried my hardest to condense everything I wanted to say down into tonight's message. I could not do it. I mean, if you'll give me some grace, it's a pretty thorough topic, right? So this is like part one of two. I rarely do like leave you hanging ones, especially when next week is United Night, and so we won't even get it next week. It'll actually be two. I, <laughs> the audacity. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I'm, I know, okay. I'm telling you, I tried my hardest to condense it, and I could not, all right? So I had to go two parts. So now, so this one is gonna, this one is gonna focus a little bit more on the beginnings of evil, the problem of evil, the origins of evil, the brokenness of the world, a little bit about what God is doing, but the next one will be about God's plan for healing this broken world. Fair enough? Okay, cool. One person enjoys that. All right. So if you guys have been here over the past few weeks, we we've been doing it fancy, y'all. We got this like cool board. Yes, I'm, I'm, sheesh. I'm already ahead tonight because I didn't accidentally turn the power off when I brought it out like I did last week. I'm doing really well tonight, so yes, thank you. All right, so last week we focused on, if you guys remember, I'm not going to go over it all again, but last week we went over all this stuff. If you missed it, go watch the YouTube channel. We've got all this stuff up online. Go listen to the podcast. It's all there, all right? But we talked through some of this stuff, the realms God created, how he filled these things, how the God above us is the God among us. His home is the earth, not the skies. His temple is among us on this earth. God dwells with his people is the overall message of the scriptures. All right, God desires to be with us. Tonight, we're going to continue some of that talk. Uh, some of it's going to be recap, but, but we need to get into, to, again, some of the origin stuff. We haven't been out of Genesis yet, primarily. We're going to be there again tonight. Genesis 3 is where we're going to be. But I'm just going to go over again, real quick, some of the creation stuff going on. All right, so in the beginning, if you open your Bibles and you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you see that in the beginning, <clears throat> there was nothing but kind of this chaotic reality of waters. We, it's very mysterious. We don't know what's going on. God is somehow in the midst of these waters, and he begins to create. In the midst of chaos, God begins to create. 
And so your Bible says the earth was formless and void or something like that. It basically means the earth was uninhabitable and unusable. It was chaotic. And God comes along and he begins to create. In the midst of chaos, God creates. And God begins to create all these different things. But in these things, there are primarily two realms. We've talked about this before. There is a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. And in the beginning, these realms directly overlapped. It was literally heaven on earth in the beginning. And God is creating all these things. Why was it heaven on earth? Because God has always desired to dwell among his people. God has always desired to share himself with his creation. God is not far removed from us. His home is not in a cloud somewhere. God, from the beginning, demonstrated to us, I desire to be with my people. It is a beautiful message of our faith that God lives on the earth with his people. And so in the midst of all of this creating this heaven on earth and all of these things, God does a couple of things out of the chaos, all right, it's up on the screen too, out of the chaos, God makes don't judge my penmanship, okay? I'm even writing in all caps for your sake. You don't want to see my normal penmanship, all right? In the midst of chaos, God is creating order. That's very important to understand. There is structure. There is order. There is a plan, and God is creating order. And as God is making all of these... Well, that's odd. As God is making all of these things, he declares they are good. That's a G. That's not wood. It's not a sideways W. All right. That is a G. Man. This is when technology this is when technology does not age you right here, right? Like <laughs> Chaos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, chaos. So in the midst of chaos, God is creating order. It's very clear in the Genesis narrative, and as he creates, he declares it good, 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 good. We even talked last week, we talked last week about there being specific realms that God creates, the realm of light, skies and seas, land and plants, day one, day two, day three, and then coordinates day four, day five, day six to fill them. In this realm, the sun, moon, and stars, in the skies and seas, birds and fish, in the land, he puts animals and humans. So there's much order, there's coordination, there's a pattern going on in the Genesis narrative. In the midst of chaos, God is creating order and he calls the order good. And then he creates men and women and he calls them very good. All right. And in that beginning, God desires to share not only himself, but to share his authority with his creation, with men and women, so that they rule and rest with him forever. This is the picture we begin to see in just Genesis 1 and 2. That God shares his authority with men and women. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. He gives them dominion over the earth and over the creatures of the earth. He gives them authority to rule. What does ruling look like in the book of Genesis with God in this perfect creation that he's making? For men and women, it looked like this. God instructs them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth to inhabit the earth I've created for you, heaven on earth, to be fruitful and multiply, and then contribute to creating more order and more good on this earth. The design for human beings all along was that God was to share his authority so that they could fill this heaven on earth that he's made and contribute to continue to create order and good in this world. 
This was paradise, a perfect relationship with God, our creator, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with ourselves, and a perfect relationship with creation. This was paradise. When God created everything in the beginning, it was in perfect harmony. Nothing had been broken yet. Nothing had been distorted yet. Did you know that Adam and Eve were never intended to die? Did you know that? Humans gained an expiration date once we rebelled against God. But in the beginning, it was a permanent state of perfect harmony with God, each other, ourselves, and creation. And then God shares his authority with us so that we can rule and rest with him forever by continuing to create good things and order in this world. That was the original design. Now, fair warning. I got I to gotta let you in on this because you're going to be frustrated if I don't. You're also going to be frustrated even if I do. So sorry about you. But here's the deal. The Bible is not some like, hey, let me give you every detail imaginable so that I can fill in all the gaps of your questions and answer every mystery you have. It just doesn't do it. And so fair warning, there is a lot of mystery that the scriptures leave us with. You're going to have questions more than I can have answers for, and that's okay. A lot of times that prompts faith, but I'm going to invite us into a mystery right now. Somewhere in the creation narrative, what we see is God creating this paradise, heaven on earth, and then somewhere in the heavenly realm that is shared and overlapping with the earthly realm. Like, imagine this, Adam and Eve, they're not just seeing the sky as we see it. They're seeing the realm of celestial beings, like angels and everything flying around. Like, the realms are shared at this point. But somewhere in this overlap, a rebellion happened in the heavenly realm. There were, there were angels, okay, these are my, stop, okay, this is, yes, yes, this is, thank you, it's very biblically accurate right there, okay, it doesn't get, it doesn't get more accurate than that. Somewhere in the beginning, and we don't know where, here's the thing. Because Genesis 1 and 2 does not specifically identify where. All we know is that by Genesis 3, some of these rebellious angels have been thrown to the earthly realm and they begin to destroy things. We see that picture in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not there. So somewhere, there's a mystery. Other scriptures kind of look at this in hindsight and give some insight. But at this point, it's just kind of like, well, okay, this is happening. A, a large number of angels a large number of celestial beings in the heavenly realm decide to rebel against God. And actually what the scriptures seem to say all throughout the Old Testament is that it, it may not have just been one occurrence. It may have been multiple rebellions in this heavenly space. And one of these angels has become famous. You know him as Lucifer, okay? All right. Or the devil, maybe you know him by that title. He has many titles. The Satan is another famous one, okay? Uh, one, El Diablo, man. All right. One of these angels, the most famous one, arguably, wanted to be like God. Did not want to submit to God any longer. Did not, did not want to come under God's dominion and authority any longer. Wanted to be like God. Wanted to sit on the throne. And he rebelled. And in that rebellion, he somehow convinced a multitude of other angels. The book of Revelation tells us that one third of all created angels, we don't know the exact number, but an uncountable amount, it seems, one-third of those rebelled with Lucifer to overthrow God. 
And in that rebellion, they failed, and God removed them from the heavenly realm and kind of assigned them to the earthly realm. It's kind of the picture we see going on through the scriptures. So this is all happening somewhere behind the scenes through somewhere between Genesis 1 and 3. It's a mystery. If you're in here and you're like, dude, give us more deets. I don't know more deets, all right? Like, deets is short for details. Sorry, man. Sorry. See what I, you know, sometimes to be an effective communicator, you abbreviate, but it actually backfires because then you have to explain your abbreviation. So there's a lot of mystery going on here. Second thing you need to know about what's going on in the establishment of, of this good and perfect harmony is that in the midst of heaven on earth, God places this tree. Okay? Stop. Thank you. Yes, I have... I, <laughs> I have... <laughs> listen, listen. I have 30 minutes, all right? Would you rather me spend more time on the drawings or explaining what's going on, okay? No, you wouldn't. All right, here we go. So somewhere in this garden, there's a tree, and God tells Adam and Eve... That tree is the knowledge of good and evil, contains the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. By the way, side note, let's just go down a side track real quick, because I think this is important for you guys. We see four things in a perfect harmony with, with God. Four principles of a perfect harmony with God. What's being established are relationships, healthy relationships. What's being established is responsibility. Can I get an Amen. You guys are like, you guys are like, no, man. But listen, God gives Adam and Eve tasks to do. They weren't just like chilling in hammocks all day. I mean, there was rest. But responsibility is a good thing. That, that is why the scriptures speak uh, so plainly towards things like laziness and apathy and slothfulness. It's because we, we were designed to actually be responsible and partner with God in what he's doing in this world and not just to kind of sit around lazily. Responsibility, as he gives them tasks to rule over the earth, Rest, to partner with God. He rested on the seventh day, not out of exhaustion, but satisfaction. He delighted in what he made, and so he rested to settle into it. We're invited into his rest as well. And then finally, restraint. In a perfect harmony with God, there was restraint. Before sin ever entered the picture, there was a reality where Adam and Eve had to restrain themselves, practice restraint, and not partake of something. That is actually good for you to learn, it seems like the scriptures would say. That is why we practice things like fasting, or we encourage practice things like fasting, because it reminds us, it's a discipline of restraint that reminds us of our dependency on God as the fulfiller and sustainer of our souls. And so God is, is enacting these things, relationships, responsibility, rest, and restraint, all in a perfect harmony with him. And that restraint was, there is a tree in the midst of the garden, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, I do not want you to eat of that tree. You can eat anything else you want. You can partake in anything else you want. I've already given you the command to be fruitful and multiply. That, that would have been an enjoyable thing as a married couple. Am I right? All right. So he's given them one rule. It was paradise. He's given them one rule. You don't act shocked here, okay? Like God is the maker of sex. We had a six-week dating series last semester. If you missed it, go listen to it again. We talked a lot about that. All right. Listen, this was paradise in perfect harmony with God, and he gives them one rule to follow, do not eat of this tree. Now that seems like an odd thing. And if you know the narrative, you know that a talking snake is about to come into the picture, which is also odd. Like, can we admit that sometimes the Bible is just kind of weird in, in some of its stories? Like, what is going on here? Why, why couldn't they eat from that tree? Like, what is the deal? So here's the deal. 
The tree of knowledge of good and evil, I believe to be both literal. I think it's a real tree with real fruit that Eve literally stood at and plucked and ate and shared with Adam. But it's also metaphorical. It represents more than just eating fruit. When God tells Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what, Adam and, what God is inviting Adam and Eve into is an exercise of trust. In other words, Adam and Eve, I have created you in perfect harmony with each other, with me, inwardly, with creation. This is paradise on earth. This is heaven on earth. We are sharing the celestial realm and the earthly realm. This is meant to be forever, to rule and rest with me forever. But in this design, I get to be the one to define good and evil in this world. I get to be the one to define what is good for you, what brings life to you, what brings hope and peace and happiness and joy, what is delightful and good for you to participate in. And I also get to be the one who decides what is evil, what will harm you, what will destroy you, what will cause decay, what will damage your souls and damage your bodies and damage your relationship. I get to be the one to to decide that. Will you trust me? There is a tree in the midst of the garden that will actually reveal to you what good and evil is, but I don't want you to participate in that. I want you to take me at my word that I know good and evil, and I know what's best for you, and I know what's most hurtful for you, and I want you to submit to that as an exercise of faith and trust in me. It's not just about eating from a tree. It's a metaphor of submission to God and trusting in God that he is good and he is loving and he's the one who created us so he wants what's best for us and he actually knows what's best for us and will you submit to that idea? And by reaching for the fruit, by plucking the fruit off and eating it, what Adam and Eve were saying was, we know better than God. We can define good and evil on our own terms. We don't have to trust God any longer. We can figure this out. We've established ourselves, we've kind of done this thing, we named the animals a lot, like we're ready. We can define good and evil for ourselves now. And guys, this is the same struggle that the world is still dealing with today. It has not changed. The overarching temptation of the world is to spread lies and falsehood, to distort truth, And to place temptations in front of people that say you can define good and evil for yourself. You don't need an authority to do it for you. God doesn't need to do it for you. This book is outdated and antiquated. You don't need this to tell you what's good and evil. You can decide that for yourself. You don't have to submit to God. You don't have to do that. You don't have to like let go. You can decide good and evil for yourself. And there are different cultures and different groups and different subgroups all advocating this message to this generation, to every generation, saying, hey, 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 you don't need to listen to God. You don't need to listen to the scriptures. You don't need to listen to church or what your pastor tells Dude, good and evil can be decided by you. It's fluid. It's lucid. Like, it's not set in stone. It's the same exact temptation we face today. And I think God would invite us into the same exact prompt of trust and faith. I think God would say, hey, Actually, I'm the one who does know best, and I know what's best for you, and I know what brings happiness and hope and joy and peace in your life because I created you, and I also know what brings death and despair and pain, and I don't want those things for you. Would you trust that I actually know what good and evil is, and would you submit to those things?
I think God gives us that same invitation. So somewhere in the midst of this rebellion, these, these angels, angelic beings rebelling against God, they are placed on earth. And, okay, like, yeah, strange. One of them in the book of Genesis takes on, thank you, yes, it's a snake, takes on the form of a snake, a serpent, and he comes along, and the scriptures say he was more crafty than anything else, and he whispered in Eve's ear some things. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight. So Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is the conversation being had between the serpent, who we later come to know as the Satan or the devil or Lucifer or the deceiver or the father of lies. But right now in the book of Genesis, he's simply called the serpent. Genesis 3, verse 1, here we go. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's referring to this, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That's our passage for tonight. We're going to kind of pick it apart a little bit. But start, let's start in verse 8 because that's significant. So what's going on is they reached out for the tree. They decided we can define good and evil. We don't need to trust God to define good and evil. They reached out for the tree, and in that moment, their eyes were open. They realized that they had joined the rebellion against God. There's already a rebellion happening in the spiritual realm, and now they just joined it, and they realize, whoa, something's off here. Uh, We need to cover up. And so they make themselves close, and their next act is once they hear God coming to them, they hide from God. And that is the continuing narrative throughout Scripture and throughout our lives, that there is a creator God who loves us and desired the best for us. We rebelled from him, and then in the mix of all those lies and all those emotions and all that confusion, God still pursues us, and we're the ones running and hiding from God. It is still happening today. But the message of the gospel is that God is the pursuer. God is the one who seeks. God desires to find. God does not desire for us to hide in shame. Shame will cripple you in your relationship with the Father. And he desires to take that away from you through grace and forgiveness that he gives. But even in the garden, we're already seeing them hiding. So let's look at what the serpent was saying to Eve. All right? So we're just going to study the three temptations that the serpent runs her through. It's the same three that are happening today. It's the same strategy that he uses today. It's no different. He just reworks it, does a few things, repackages it, and rebrands it, and it, it seems to be pretty effective. So let's look at the first pairing uh, of what's going on in his conversation with Eve. 
Eve says this, God did say. Eve says, God did say. What is, what is God, let's hit that uh, next slide there. <clears throat> Eve says, God did say. God did say not to eat of the tree or even touch it and will die. How did Satan respond? Did God say that? Eve says, no, 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 God did say this. And the serpent says, yeah, but did he say that? Did he really say that? And so the first temptation that we see the serpent putting in front of Eve, temptation number one is to question God's word. To question God's word. Think about your life. Think about your sin struggles. Think about the things that you wrestle with. Think about the things that you're confused about. Think about the things that you're frustrated with God about. Think about the things that you disagree with God about. And I would be willing to bet that they all find their roots somewhere in the midst of this. That somewhere along the line, someone has gotten you to question what God has said. Dude, you don't need, like this book, you know it's written like thousands of years ago, right? I mean, not even thousands of years ago by one person. I'm talking like multiple authors over thousands and thousands of years from different places all around the world. And we somehow have it today by finding these little fragments of writings on animal skins in these caves somewhere? Like, you trust that? You, like, no, dude, it was a group of men who sat down in a room and decided what needs to go in here. And it's a system of suppression and control because that's all that religion is. And there's no way to preserve something as dynamic as multiple authors through 66 books over the course of thousands and thousands. Of, come on, man. Like, you hear someone talk that way long enough and you're kind of like, yeah, man, they got a lot of good points. Like, how is, this, how is the Bible actually like, is this really God's word? Can we really trust it? How do we still have it today? Yeah, man. And then like you do, you got all these different translations, not even in English language. I'm talking like all over the world. There's all different translations. And man, if you look in the original languages and you look in the Greek, that word that we think means that actually meant something else. And you can see all of it. Like you can read all these other Greek writings and see that word was used differently all throughout Greek culture. But in the Bible, all of a sudden it means that, no, man, like it's all a system of oppression. I can't tell you how many times I hear this all the time. And you hear people talk that way long enough, and all of a sudden you begin to question, dude, is this thing even reliable? I mean, like, how am I supposed to trust? I don't even know where, where would I even start to learn if I could trust this? The first temptation that the serpent puts in front of Eve is, yeah, but did God really say that? Like, I know you think you heard that, but did he really say that? Temptation one is to question God's word. It's always where it starts. To question what God has said to be true. To question what God has said to be good and life-giving and hopeful. All right, let's look at the next little pairing. Eve responds with, yeah, he did say that. He said, we will die. The serpent responds with, no, you, you won't die. Like, come on, you're not going to It's God. It's God. He made you. You think he would make you only to kill you. That's crazy. You're not going to die. What's the worst that could happen? You try a new fruit. Ooh. You know? Like you can hear this argument playing out. You're not going to die. Temptation number two is to contradict God's authority. Temptation number one is to question God's word. Temptation number two is to 
contradict God's authority. In other words, God's not going to do what he said he would do. God's not going to do what he said would happen to contradict God's authority. What God told Adam and Eve was, if you eat of that tree, you will die. But it seems like the serpent is kind of spinning it like, no, that's not going to happen. God's not going to, he couldn't kill you. He loves you. Like, it just kind of seems like there's this manipulative twist to it. God never said, if you eat of that tree, I'll kill you. I'll make sure you're dead. What God said is you will die. And what God was trying to help them understand is, if you join the rebellion, if you join the rebellion, then you join death. It was only after Adam and Eve sinned that death became a reality, both physical and spiritual. Our bodies began to decay. They, became, they, they started on a timeline after that. And our souls were damaged from our creator. They needed to be repaired. That's what God was trying to help Adam and Eve understand. If you rebel against me, the reality is death. You join the rebellion. Please, I want you to have life. Will you trust that I know good and evil for you? Will you submit to that? The serpent comes along, question God's word, challenge or contradict God's authority. And look, he does it a little differently this time. Did you notice? It's subtle, but it's, it's um, oh, let's go one slide back. It's subtle, but it's there. Eve responds with a statement, just like she did last time, but this time he doesn't question it. He responds back with a statement of more emphasis. The first time, it's a little thought-provoking. Did God really say that? This time, it's like intimidating. You won't die. Like he trumps it with the emphasis. You won't surely die. Like there's this emphatic gesture. It's no longer a question. It's a statement. And then let's, let's look at the next. Uh, it's not a pairing any longer. Eve doesn't say anything after this. The serpent just throws in a statement. He says this. You will be like God if you eat of this tree. For God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Eve doesn't say anything to prompt this. The serpent just knows, if I just say this, it plants the seed. That's all that's necessary at this point. Question God's word, contradict God's authority. And now, third temptation is conquer God's supremacy. In other words, you don't need God if you can be like God. You don't need God to define good and evil for you if you can define good and evil for you. Why would you need God when you could be God? Now, he just lost the rebellion in heaven, right? So can you see what he's trying to do, the serpent? He is a defeated foe. He has lost the rebellion in the heavenly realms, and he's cast to earth. And so what he's trying to do, and actually what we see all throughout history is that behind the scenes there exists, behind the scenes in this world, there exists this realm of shadows. Moses is the first person to refer to them as demons, but we know them as demons or fallen angels or whatever. And they are behind the scenes trying to rise to power through manipulating corrupted earthly systems, like on a massive scale, so corrupted government, corrupted religion, or whatever. They're, they're, they're using corrupted systems to further their agenda, and they're also doing it on a personal level. They are, they're going after individuals as well through temptation or 
or suffering or whatever, but their agenda is to undo this order and goodness that God has made. In other words, they are trying to bring everything back into chaos. That is their goal. Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 10, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He gives us this insight. The agenda of the darkness is to undo the good and the order that God has made in this world. And to do it through manipulative and deceitful ways of actually whispering in people's ears or, or using corrupted systems to further their agenda and produce evil leaders overseeing multitudes of people making dangerous decisions that further plunge everything into disorder and chaos. This is happening all behind the scenes, which is why it's imperative that the people of God have the discernment to know the truth. Jesus calls Satan, the father of lies. And one of the things that we ought to know is truth from lie, deception from what is true. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve to question God's word, contradict God's authority, and conquer God's supremacy. You don't need God if you can be God. And so they buy it, and they reach for the fruit, and they find a world of pain. The reality of what they find is that the realms of heaven on earth become the realms of heaven and earth. And there is a great divide due to their sin. And the darkness and the disorder and the chaos and all of that is now a present reality on our earth. The suffering and the pain and the brokenness of this world. If you've ever wondered, man, where does this all come from? It comes from a rebellion against our Creator, first in the heavenly spaces and then by us here on earth. And those domains split, and the earth began to feel the effects of what God warned us about, which is death. There's a lot of synonyms throughout the scriptures, pain, suffering, sin, evil. But now we live in the realities of those decisions because we joined the rebellion so long ago. So look at, look at the serpent's strategy. First, he gets us to question, then he gets us to challenge, and then he introduces the thought. Question God's word, challenge the authority, and now he introduces, yeah, but you could be God. This is the strategy. It still goes on today. Question, challenge, introduce. Same thing. So, what is God doing? What is God doing in the midst of all this? Where is God in the midst of our brokenness? How is this broken earth that is feeling the pains of the rebellion and suffering and pain and evil and death, where is God in all of this? Well, we saw a glimpse of it in Genesis 3.8. God comes down to walk with Adam and Eve. They're the ones hiding. God is always the pursuer. And so what we see all throughout history is that God is pursuing the domain. He is, he is trying to bring the heavenly domain back to the earthly domain. And sometimes they get very, very close but they never actually overlap until, until Jesus. This is the depiction that we see in the New Testament. In fact, if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins his public ministry with this word right here, with this verse right here. He begins his entire public ministry with this, with this verse. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the domain of heaven is now coming 
into the domain of earth. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is so close you can reach out and touch it. We are feeling the effects of heaven and the realities of heaven, but we're not fully out of the domain of pain and sin and death and, and, and suffering yet on earth. And so we live in this weird overlap where we're feeling the realities of both. But Jesus, as he began his ministry, is not just touching the domains, he has begun the overlap again. And that is the entire New Testament, what, what it's talking to us about. And then finally, finally, one last verse here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If we could throw this one up on the screen for, for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, God made Jesus to be sin, uh, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in time we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what this verse is saying, if we can go back to my little drawing here, he who knew no sin became sin. So all of the effects of the rebellion, all, all of these like demonic celestial beings and all of this pain and death and, and like sin, that says death, have grace with me, I'm writing fast, all of the realities of the rebellion, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus allowed himself to become engulfed by sin and death and pain and suffering. His own sin? No. He who knew no sin became sin on the cross. Adam and Eve reached for a tree and cursed the world. Jesus died on a tree and began healing the world. He who knew no sin became sin. He took on the brokenness of the world. He took on pain and suffering and death so that, so that, so that he could finally conquer it once and for all. And then what 2 Corinthians 5.21 also says is that in him we have become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took on all of our sin and what he gives us through faith in him is his righteousness. In other words, how we were created in the beginning, perfect harmony with God, Jesus has made that a reality for us through his perfect life lived on this earth and now given to us as a gift. See, when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see us through the lens of our sin. He sees us as he's pleased in the life of his son. The, the life and righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account so that in the eyes of God, it is as if you've never sinned at all for those who have faith in Jesus, bringing us back again into this reality of how God made us through the blood and sacrifice and grace of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. But let me say it like this, and we'll finish out. The world began breaking when humanity decided to become God. The world began healing when God decided to become human. The world began breaking when humanity decided to become God. The world began healing when God decided to become human when God became a man. Will you allow God to define for you what is good and evil in this world? Will you trust him in faith and submit to his word that he does know what's best for you because he created you? He knows truth. He is truth. Jesus says his word is truth, John 17, 17. Will you, will you step out in an act of faith and trust God to define good and evil and trust that Jesus has begun a process of healing this broken world? As I said, this is part one. 
We'll look at more of that healing and what Jesus is actually doing in this world the next time we gather. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your word and uh, what an incredible message. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming man, becoming like us, and beginning a, a healing process in this world. Jesus, we love you, and uh, I think the prayer tonight is that you would help us learn to submit to you and trust your standard of good and evil in this world. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.